Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brand. And this episode, we're discussing SST 136, the Glenn Phillips Band LP Elevator. It's our first Glenn Phillips LP, and we've got the man himself on the show, Brand. Yeah, Glenn Phillips, the guest tonight. Yeah, I feel like pretty spoiled actually because we've had Henry Kaiser, E Sharp. Now, Glenn, we've got these like insane guitar gods on the show. You must be, you must be losing your mind I in am. particular. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I'm a Glenn Phil- Glenn Phillips nut, so I'm pretty excited. Yeah, that's awesome. You got any spiels to start off the show, my man? Oh yeah, I sure do. Well, we should probably talk about Mr. Chai Pig. Yeah, that's uh, that's the elephant in the room. I was going to bring it up too, and we better start off with uh, a big loss in the music world, and I know for you and me personally. Yeah. Well, here's the thing I've I've been thinking about. Um, Like, we talk, you know, a lot about Canadian punk rock on this podcast because we're Canadian, and we have, obviously, a soft spot for it. And I was thinking to myself about what I wanted to talk about in regards to Chai Pig, and I was thinking about how we brought up the Forgotten Rebels. Ah. And we were kind of lamenting that they weren't maybe well known outside of Canada. And I have to think like besides DOA for punk bands, it's got to be SNFU that had a, you know, connected with people globally. I think you're right. Yeah. And maybe followed closely by no means no, but, uh, SNFU, the other thing that SNFU did like DOA is they really like they were road hogs and de- and developed that tour network with everyone else in the mid 80s like without a doubt yeah well obviously you know i'm pretty protective of canadian punk rock history and and you know the movie's called american hardcore <laughs> but like so many canadian bands pioneered the genre and although i wouldn't say that snfu goes back that far and we're pioneers like mr chai pig in particular wrote the blueprint for punk rock frontmen. yeah it is just an insane insane showman i mean i was lucky enough to see them i think i was trying to remember four times i think i saw them and i should have saw them way more than that in fact um you know say what you will about this last iteration of the snfu band um, and a lot of people are pretty critical of it. Um, I was actually like, I had tickets with a couple of buddies to go see them. Uh, it's probably three years ago that they were going to roll through town and they had to cancel. And I tell you, man, like, you know, you, you, you miss stuff even more when it's gone. Don't you? Like, I really wish I could have went, but, but I was thinking about SNFU and, my connection to them and it's weird like i think i saw them for the first time when i was 14 probably one of my first road trips with you know of course older punks who uh let me sit in the back and we drove to another town and there's something about that age when you're you know 13 14 15 that music that you see and in particular if you got to see you know, punk bands at that age in such an intimate environment, like it sticks with you for the rest of your life, like SNFU has for me. Yeah. And Mr. Chai Pig blew my 
freaking mind at 14 years old. Like it was insane. Yeah. I saw him quite young too. And same thing. And you know, one of the first punk rock compilation tapes somebody ever made for me had the song womanizer on it, which I've always singled Mm. out as an amazing song and a great example of Chai's lyrics. We've talked a lot about, you know, misogyny and in songs like say slip it in or whatever. How many punk bands were writing songs that kind of decried misogyny like Womanizer does? Way back then? Yeah. Uh, the list was pretty short, I bet. Yeah. So that also speaks to Chai himself, who was, you know, pretty troubled and dealing with his own sexuality too, right? Like he, very, very troubled history, and it came through in his lyrics on every single record. Yeah. Yeah, and, well... There's two great resources. There's an SNFU book by Chris Walters that everyone should check out if they haven't. Do you remember what it's called, Ryan? What No One Else Wanted to Say. Right. And then there's a great documentary called Open Up and Say Mr. Chai Pig, right? That's what it's called? Yeah, you betcha. They're both really great. And sure, it's pretty obvious that Mr. Chai Pig had some mental health problems, some addictions issues. Uh, But I also booked his band many times, especially you know, including on what I call the reunion tour, what's the really good album, their kind of comeback album? In the meantime and in between time? Yeah. Yeah. They were great. And uh, the thing about Mr. Chai Pig that I'm sure everybody already knows is what you saw on stage is what you got off a of stage too. Like he was the real deal. It wasn't an act. Yeah. I was with a couple of buddies of mine at a festival in town here. We were actually on our way to see Bob Mould, but on our way, we walked by the main stage and there was this fence where you could only get in if you had a wristband, but we wanted to catch Rocket from the Crypt. So we got there early enough to kind of listen slash see a glimpse of Rocket from the Crypt from outside. And there's there's Chai Pig um, getting like trying to get in. And the bouncers are not letting him in and stuff and trying to get in for free. And someone ended up giving him the wristband to get in. Um, we were standing there and Chai Pig also walks by us and pretends to dry hump us as we, as he, <laughs> uh, walks into the, into the main stage to check out the bands. And it was like a total Chai Pig moment too, but like totally harmless yeah. too, right? You're just like, oh man, there's good old Chai Pig, right? He would just show up. Yeah. He would, he would literally just show up at shows in Canada too, right? For sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big loss. So uh, I'm glad we got to talk about that. Hey, Ryan, can I drop my G section on you? Well, well hang on. Well, I was I wanted to do the Six Degrees of Innovations SNFU edition for you. Can oh, we do that first? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, because you gave, you gave me a task. I had to do like the Greg Ginn version of six degrees of Kevin Bacon or whatever. Right. And I thought in honor of Chai, I I would test you to give me a six degrees of innovation starting from SNFU. Now, you've got a better memory and you're better at games than me. So this is probably going to be easy as pie. I figured out three ways to get to Greg in from SNFU. Um, I'm interested to see if you can give me one. Okay. Let's see here. Well, Six moves or less, okay? Okay. Um, well, I'll 
probably the most easiest direct route is probably John Card, I'm guessing, who pl- played drums <laughs> with, with SNFU and played drums with everybody, actually. Uh, let's see. He also played in DOA. Yep. Chuck Biscuits was in DOA, and Chuck Biscuits yep. was in Black Flag. Yep. That was that's definitely the most obvious one. I figured out like a a couple of more circuitous ones. Um, do you have another one though before I drop one on you? Okay. Um, hmm. Maybe think about the labels that SNFU was on, okay. like BYO, BYO, Alternative Tentacles, Epitaph. Okay. Well, they were on BYO. Who else was? BYO is harder to get to Gin than Epitaph. Okay. They were on Epitaph for, well, their best one on Epitaph, in my opinion, was uh, Something Green and Leafy This Way Comes. Yep. Let's see, who else was on Epitaph? Do you want a hint? Yep. Go to Bad Religion from here. Okay, Bad Religion was on Epitaph. Mm-hmm. Who was in Bad Religion? Uh, Greg Hetson. And Greg Hetson was was in the circle jerks and keith morris from the circle jerks was in black flag nice nice move i was also gonna say uh, <laughs> you had to help me out quite a bit with that one <laughs> yeah i could say you could also get there like do like a very very roundabout you know brian baker dave smalley cruise gin type you could do those steps to get to gin as well yep. if you count like cruise records as a move you know you could do it that way good one yeah so Good there's ton, there's tons. The the main message here though is we lost a huge a huge figure in the punk rock world and everyone should check out SNFU. Every single one of their records has great music on it. For sure. Every yeah. single one. It's now, true. Brant, you're gonna you're gonna now take me to the G section of your phone. Yeah. So do you want to know my name for it? I wonder if it's the same one I have. Yeah, my name for this section is the good music spot. <laughs> Get it? No. Okay. Well, you better. You better. Uh, I got my pen out. Give me some G's. And you should my... remind. You should remind people what you're gonna. What you're doing here with the G? Oh, I'm getting. Sh- I'm getting shit off my phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going alphabetically and listening to all the stuff that's been on my phone for ages and and getting it off. This is the good music spot. Let's do okay. it. Okay. I, my name for it was the G-Spot Tornado, Ryan. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> okay. In honor of our episode last week, with Always August, I have a, a Grateful Dead spiel. Uh, I own a ton of Grateful Dead music, but the one I chose to listen to was actually a Spotify playlist curated by Bill Kreutzmann, the band's drummer, one of their two drummers. Uh, it's called Bill Kreutzmann's Favorite Jams. It was released in conjunction with his awesome book, which is called Deal, one of the better Grateful Dead books. And I have a couple of Grateful Dead podcast shout-outs to go along with it. 36 from the Vault is uh, these two dudes, Stephen and Rob, doing an overview of each release in the Dick's Picks series. Pretty legendary series of live albums. And then just recently, a couple of weeks ago, they launched a Grateful Dead official podcast called Good Ol' Grateful Deadcast. And they're starting by celebrating the 50th anniversary of Working Man's Dead by doing a track-by-track rundown on each episode. 
And because it's official, you get lots of insider perspective, and they play music on it also. It's really good. At least the two episodes they've released so far. Okay, uh, here's one, Ryan, that's on the SS tree, and it's also a recommend from you. Gang Font featuring Interloper. It's great, man. I just loved it. Self-titled, jazzy, avant-garde rock with Greg Norton on bass. Yeah, it's really nice. good. Yeah, good recommend. Thanks for that one. Yep. Okay, Gunfire Dance, Archway of Thorns. This is a comp that has everything they did on it, and it's killer Thunder-style uh, glammy punk rock from the UK. Right up my alley. Okay, a band called Gut Bank. The album's called The Dark Ages. Do you know it, Ryan? I don't. I thought you might because it's on Twin Tone. It's cool, kind of jagged, gothy post-punk that Jeff Schreck actually had a post about and it sounded cool a while back. So I checked it out and it is really good. Mm, That's on my to-do list now. Yep. Ground Zero. Not the Boston punk rock band, but the Japanese avant jazz noise rock group. They have several releases. This is the one that's on John Zorn's Zadik label, which I generally check out everything on. It's called called Null and Void. If you're looking for something weird, check that one out. Ground Zero. Okay, here's a band that's a favorite of mine I've mentioned many times. Green on Red. I did their album Here Come the Snakes. I actually have the deluxe edition that's got a whole bunch of demos on it and stuff. It's really good. I love all their records, but that one is up there for me, for sure. Here's another SS Tree release, Ryan, we were talking about recently. Gobblehoof, Freezer Burn. Oh, yeah. New Alliance Records, 80. I'm not sure Mascus actually plays on that one. I think he just produced it. He's on the self-titled one. I don't think he's on Freezer Burn. I agree. Yeah. Okay. And for people who don't know, the vocalist in that band is Charlie Nakajima of Deep Wound. Awesome singer. Okay, God and the State Ruins the Complete Works. 1985 Happy Squid Records. Yes, right? yes. Oh Do man, you know? I love I love that record. Yeah, it's good. Great post-punk. The drummer's name is Kevin Barrett. Yes. Of 100 right. Flowers, The Urinals, Rad Waste. Good stuff. Here's one, Ryan, that I bet you like. God Bullies, War on Everything. Oh yeah. 1992 Amphetamine Reptile. They also recorded for Alternative Tentacles. Killer Noise Rock. Their main man, Mike Hard, has a couple of other awesome bands, including Thrall, Mm -hmm. who released a couple on Alternative Tentacles, and a few other bands, including one we'll probably hear about next week when we get to the H section. Three bands called God I had on my phone, Ryan. Ooh, there's one band named God that I really like from Australia. Yep, they're in here. Okay, God, Sweet Life, bitchin' Artie Matthew Rock from the Netherlands. If you can track it down, it rules. So see if you can. And then another band called God. This is the uh, the British industrial group. They're called the album's called Possession. They have several albums actually. Headed up by musician producer Kevin Martin. I got into this because of. Justin K. Broderick from Godflesh plays on it, and also John Zorn's in the band. It's pretty awesome. Uh, industrial, kind of heavy, jazzy, Swans-esque uh, stuff. It's really good. Okay, and then God. This I, I listened to a self-titled comp that came out in 2010. Contains everything they did. 
including one of the best singles to ever come out of Australia, My Pal. Yep, you got that right. Like many of the Aussie bands, these dudes played in many other bands like Haas, The Anyas, The Yes Men. Tim Hensley uh, from the band God played in two of my faves, Bored and The Powder Monkeys. Unfortunately, he died of a heroin overdose in 2003, as did God guitarist Sean Greenway. Okay, speaking of Godflesh, I did their Earache Peel Sessions. Awesome versions of street cleaner material, still holding out hope for another Godflesh record. Do you like Godflesh, Ryan? No, it's never worked for me. Okay, Okay, here's a few on the SS tree. Greg Ginn, Getting Even. We're in the G section, so I had to do some Greg Ginn. 1993 cruise records i've always wanted to like this record and i've been trying ever since it came out this one and dick and let it burn and all of them i just can't (laughs) what's the what's the hang-up for you probably his vocals yeah 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 i hear you okay goodbye harry food stamp barbecue yes 1995 cruise record scott reynolds band after he left all Here's a recommend for you, Ryan. I think you'd like this if you've never heard it. The band's called Grand General. It's their self-titled soul release on the always worth checking out Rune Gramophone Records. Came out in 2013. Uh, It's got a bunch of members of the Norwegian jazz fusion prog scene, like people from Motor Psycho and Bushman's Revenge. It's pretty good. Cool. Here's another recommend I've mentioned to you a few times, Ryan, so I'm going to put it back on your radar. Gore, the band Gore, Mean Man's Dream. I tried, I tried, I couldn't do it. You didn't like Gore? No, I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, it's I, I mean, I like it, but it's not something that would become part of my, my repertoire, my collection, you know? All right, well, anybody out there who likes process of weeding out black era Black Flag will like Gore, for sure. Okay, here's another one on the SS Tree, Ryan. Golden Smog. Weird oh, Tales, 1998. Yep. Yep. I like all of their records. Kind of a, a revolving cast of Minneapolis musicians from bands like the Jayhawks, Soul Asylum. Chris Mars plays drums on one of the albums. Down by the Old Mainstream is an album, right? Yep. Uh, and one of their mainstays is Craig Johnson, who was in the band Run Res- Westy Run. Yeah. We have several albums on SST. Okay, Gardner, we talked about that a few weeks ago. New Dawning Time came out in 1999 on Sub Pop. It's Van Connor and Aaron Stoffer from Seaweed. Very birds meets like Built to Spill or something like that. Here's another recommend from you, Ryan. Giant's Chair, Prefabalon. Yes. Came out last year. I think it was in your top 10. It's really I'm, good. I'm not sure if it was in my top 10. Maybe, maybe. But I mean, it was like, you know, old uh, mathy emo rock that got back together after 20 years and put out a killer record. Yeah, it is really good. Okay, just a few more, Ryan. Group Dog Drill. Do you know them? I don't. G-R-O-O-P. Dog Drill. Check them out. Do you like the band Therapy? Um, I That's the, the band from Ireland? Yeah. Is that the one you mean with the cello player? Is that the one? Mm-hmm. I don't think they have a cello player. Huh. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else. I saw a band called Therapy, I thought from Ireland, like, whew, long time ago. They did a wicked cover of Diane by Husker Du. 
Check out Group Dog Drill. You might like them. Half Nelson is the album I listen to. Okay. All right, Greenleaf Rustlers. Speaking of the dead, this is Chris Robins- Robinson's new side project. Uh, they have a brand new album out called From Within Marin. They cover The Stones, J.J. Kale, Waylon Jennings, The Birds. It's really good, too. Gray, G-R-A-Y. Shades Of is the name of the album. Cool, experimental, avant-garde stuff. I think I read about them in that Swans book, but I'm not sure why that ended up on my phone, but it's good. I did the Gun Club album, Las Vegas Story. I'm on a real Gun Club kick ever since reading Lanigan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lanigan just gushing about them. Yeah, me too. I usually do Fire of Love, Miami, or Mother Juno, so I've been listening to some of the other ones that I don't do as much. Here's one you'll appreciate, Ryan. Gus, the progressive science of breeding idiots for a dumber society. Oh, man. That's... I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There you want to talk about some obscure Canadian punk rock. There you go. But, but, Brant, Gus, do a killer cut we were talking about the crucifix last week or the week before when when did we have uh uh steve shelley on two uh, weeks ago yeah yeah gus do a great cover of the song wisconsin yeah okay so gus uh, came out in 1995 wrong records no means no's label stephen mcbean was actually in the band he's now in black mountain but he was in yep. a bunch of bands Going all the way back to the early, early, mid-80s, Jerk Ward, Mission of Christ, he was in Red Tide, as was the singer in Gus, John Craggs, and the drummer, Ken Jensen, and he yep. was also in the Hanson Brothers and DOA, and he died in a house fire, fire in 1995. And the album's produced by Cecil English, who did a zillion DOA albums, so it sounds great, too. Okay, almost done, Ryan. Godfathers, br- the British rock band, do you know them? I do, yep. Yeah. I've never really gotten into them, though. I love them. I did the record Hit by Hit, which is a comp of all their early singles, but their debut, Birth School, Work Death, is a total classic. And they had a really good comeback record in 2017 that's worth checking out. Gong. I did the album You. Do you know Gong? Do you listen to them? Prog rock, right? 70s? Kind of jazzy, psychedelic prog rock. Their first three, yeah. what are what are generally known as the Radio Gnome Invisible Trilogy, are all really great. And there's a tie-in, too. Their guitar player is Steve Hillage, who we mentioned in the interview today with Glenn. Great. Gas Huffer, Ryan. Integrity, nice. Technology, and Service. Produced by Jack Eno, Tom Price of the U-Men. I was wondering, Ryan, have you ever heard the, the record Tom Price Desert Classic? No. What's that like? I don't know. I've never heard it. I've never yeah, been able I, to find it, to be honest with you. I never got into Gas Huffer as much as like the U-Men. The U-Men are the ones that I go back to. I've got probably, I don't know, more than half of the Gas Huffer records, but I never go back to them as much as the U-Men. Yeah, I like Gas Huffer. Okay, two more. Grip Weeds, House of Vibes. Nice. 1994 debut album. I listened to the revisited version I got on CD. It's got some demos and stuff. It's really good. Great band. They, you talk about a band that hasn't put out a bad record. All of their albums are really good. Yep. And finally, Ryan, my go-to Goblin album. 
Nice. Yeah. Which one was it, man? I wonder if it's my go-to Goblin album. It's probably nobody's go- go-to Goblin album. I probably get beat up by Goblin fans for saying this, but I, I don't really know too much about Goblin. Uh, but the one record I have is called Goblin Rebirth. It came out on Relapse in 2015. It's very proggy. It's good. It's got some good guitar playing on it. I don't know enough about Goblin to tell you who's in the band, but it's some you know, configuration of the band. I, I have a feeling there's kind of two goblins out there. But mm. but Ryan, don't quote me on that. I won't. Yeah. That's my favorite Frank quote, by the way. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for bearing with me while I get this shit off my phone. Jeez Louise, man. That's going to be a long haul. I'm getting lots of good recommends, though, which is good. Do you have any more spiels? No, man. That's it. All righty. Well, um... You ready to take the elevator? Going up? Way up. History lesson, part one. So, Brant, I've got um, I've got a couple of spaceman spiels about uh, about Glenn. You just you just say when, and I'll I'll sprinkle those throughout. But where should we start on this? You know, this is, and and I mean, like, it is a weird Glenn Phillips album. To, yeah. to to like we're like we're like jumping right into Glenn Phillips. There's so much that comes before and after, you know? Well, I have a bit of a history lesson, but I think we should throw it over to Glenn and then I'll do a recap with some of the stuff that he doesn't mention. What I will will say is I'm gonna give the names of who's in the band so people have some context as they're listening to the interview. Ah, uh, good idea. So Glenn Phillips is obviously the band leader and the guitar player. Bill Rhea is the bass player. Paul Provost is the keyboard player. And Doug Landsberg is the drummer. Now, there's a bunch of Glenn Phillips records before this one that we talk about. So uh, please bear with us if you don't know his history. I hope it's not too just disjointed. Uh, I was maybe going into the interview from a fan's perspective, kind of knowing the history a little bit. So... But I will say, uh, every single Glenn Phillips record that came before this is totally worth checking out. So, but we'll get to that. We'll talk about that some more. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Glenn Phillips. Glenn, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Now, we're talking about specifically the al- album Elevator, but I want to go back if we can, starting with okay. the Hampton Grease Band. I'm wondering if, if you can give our listeners kind of a an overview of the Hampton Grease Band? Well, the Hampton Grease Band was a very esoteric group formed in 67 and uh, broke up in 73. We uh, had very long, involved pieces of music that were uh, not commercial by any stretch of the imagination. But we happened to play at the Atlanta pop the second atlanta pop festival and we played there twice and we got a uh, really big reaction for whatever reason who knows but there were people there from columbia records who although they had no idea what was going on with the band musically they saw the reaction that the audience gave us so they got in touch with clive davis and said we have to sign these guys they're going to be the next big thing so they signed us and we ended up putting out a double album on Columbia with 20-minute songs, uh, with lyrics taken out of the encyclopedia about Halifax, 
Uh, one song had lyrics read straight off a can of spray paint. <laughs> the, the farthest thing from commercial that you could imagine, <laughs> right. but being released on a major label. So it was a very bizarre sort of story. First off, how did this band happen and come out of the South? Right. And second off, how did they get signed to a major label? And the band and the story of the band and our performances, which were very esoteric and kind of bizarre, uh, have formed kind of a cult following over the years, and the record's been re-released a couple times since then. Okay. So when the band breaks up around 73, you start playing with uh-huh. with Bill Sheffield, you're... You do some opening up for Muddy Waters. You become friendly with Lowell George. Uh, you're sitting in with Little Feet. And then right. you actually recorded a demo with Lowell producing. Yes, Lowell uh, was a big fan of... Uh, he was he was a real supporter of, of, of other musicians. He had, he had said in a magazine interview that I was the most amazing guitarist he had ever heard. He made a demo tape of me playing and took it to Warner Brothers uh, to get them to to see if they'd put the record out. Uh, and again, this was another bizarre set of happenstance because Warner Brothers had never heard of me. And this was all instrumental. When I was doing this music on my own, it was all instrumental music. Right. So he takes it to Warner Brothers, and certainly because it was him taking it, they wanted to sign me to Warner Brothers, which, again, is kind of a bizarre set of circumstances. Um, but at the time, after Columbia Records dropped the Hampton Grease Band, uh, Frank Zappa signed us to his label. We were friends with him. We had done sh- uh, shows with him. And he signed us to his label, and which was run by his manager, Herb Cohen. Right. At the time this happened with Warner Brothers, Herb Cohen was in, in the midst of lawsuits with Warner Brothers and Frank Zappa. And so when he heard that Warner Brothers wanted to sign me, he told them, you're going to have to give me $100,000 if you want to sign this guy. Not that they would ever have given $100,000 to sign some unknown guitarist putting on an instrumental album. Right. He was just doing it out of spite and because he was in conflict with them. So, of course, at that point... They, they told Lowell, no, we can't do this because we're, we're, we're not going to pay $100,000 for this guy. In the midst of this, my father committed suicide, and I felt compelled. to do, My way of dealing with this was to uh, make an album about it. I'm a musician. That's how I cope with it. Right. So I made this album on my own in, in my duplex called Lost at Sea, and this was... This predated the do-it-yourself movement. Um, I recorded this in 74. I put it out in early 75. And somehow a copy of it drifted over to uh, John Peel on the BBC. And he started playing it all the time and became a a big fan of the records. And the record became uh, very popular in England, and which led Richard Branson to fly over. Richard Branson from Virgin Records right. to fly over to sign me to Virgin Records. And then Virgin Records released that album, and we went over there and toured. So I, I would say my early career was a real reflection of how different the music business was then than it is now. There's no way I could ever imagine a band like the Hampton Grease Band 
or a guitarist like myself getting signed to two major labels yeah. uh, and, and, and having a, a, another major label offering to pay $100,000. This was not commercial music at all. It was very independent. I'm going to do what I want to do. The band was, we're going to do what we want to do, and we'll just live with the consequences. We don't care. That was very much the spirit of the band. And it's interesting that you're calling up about SST and asking me these questions because although uh, SST was from in another time and dealing with a, a probably what would be thought of as a different sort of music, I very much related to the independent spirit, both of the artists and the label, yeah. because of my history. Yeah, you've, you formed your Snow Star Records around this time. Yes, that was in 75, and so uh, when, when this thing happened with SST, which, to be honest, although I was aware of the SST label and aware of the bands, I wasn't deeply into it. Like, I wasn't a collector at that point. I was in an age where I was touring all the time with my band. And But when I started listening to the music more and listening to the different bands on the label and what the label was about, I did very much identify and feel connected with it from a distance, from another, like from another time. Right. Okay, so back to the Swim in the Wind era. This is the start of your musical collaboration with Bill. Yes. Um, Lost at Sea was the first album I made that I recorded my duplex, and I had had to, I didn't have a band at that time. So I just uh, contacted, asked around about, about people. I wanted to record it live, and Bill, I, I wanted a, an acoustic guitarist playing on the record, and Bill was a very uh, accomplished acoustic guitarist. So he played acoustic guitar in Lost at Sea, and we became close friends. And Mike Holbrook, the bass player from the Hampton Grease Band, was the bass player on that record. But Mike was in another band at the time, so he couldn't stay. Once, once I started playing out live after Lost at Sea, Mike Holbrook had to leave. And I don't know if it was inspiration that I thought Bill would make a uh, great bass player or desperation because I needed a bass player. Right. It was probably a little, a little bit of both. But I asked Bill if he would be up for playing bass. And he said, yes, he, you know, he'd give it a try. And so he started playing bass in the band. And he's been in the band, and we've been playing together ever since then. And then also around this time, Doug Landsberg joins on drums. And I believe it was Bill who brought Doug into the band. Well, yes, Doug and Bill had a band prior to playing with me, a group called Labyrinth. It was a really good group. And piece by piece, those members started uh, playing with me, Bill first, then Doug Landsberg. Then when we were making Swim in the Wind, we needed a keyboard player for a particular track. And so we got in touch with Labyrinth's keyboard player, Dana Nelson. And then she ended up joining the band. And my third album, Dark Lights, the band was myself, Bill, Doug, and Dana, all from Labyrinth. Prior to Dark Lights, you mentioned your European tour, and you played a bunch of dates with Steve Halage from Gong. That must have been exciting for you. Yes, that was a, that was a really uh, incredible thing to be able to do, incredible opportunity. Virgin Records was very much, uh, again, this was another reflection of the era. 
they became a very big label, but the, the, the acts they were signing, for the most part, were very esoteric acts. Myself, uh, touring with Steve Hillage, Mike Oldfield, who, uh, I, when I went over to England the first time, Mike Oldfield had heard Lost at Sea. He was a fan of the band, and he asked me to come stay with him. He was a kind of a recluse and known as a recluse, so it was... I've since learned that that was kind of a unique thing going over there and staying with him. But he became incredibly successful off of Tubular Bells, which was, you know, an all-instrumental record that was just uh, basically one song on both sides. So Virgin was doing very unique things. And at the time, it was sort of a changeover era for them. They had just signed the Sex Pistols, and the Sex Pistols' first album had come out. And it was banned on the God Save the Queen was banned on the radio because it was the uh, time of the Queen's bicentennial celebration, and it was considered unpatriotic. So it was banned on the radio and still became number one. So when we were over there touring with Steve Hillage and these connections with Mike Oldfield and people from another era, the punk thing was exploding in England at that time, and it was very exciting to be around. And again, I. I really identify with it and related to it because even though the music was very different, the sensibility in many ways reminded me of the Hampton Grease Band. So I was lucky to be in this uh, in in England touring when there, when there was a massive cultural shift. Now, around the time of 1980s, Dark Lights is when you stopped going by just under the name Glenn Phillips and you change it to the Glenn Phillips Band. Right. Up until that point, it, I was very much just doing this stuff on my own. But by the time we got to the third album, and Doug, Bill, and Dana were all part of the band, I just felt like I should uh, change it to Glenn Phillips' band. I didn't want to lose the people. The music was very much a uh, a progression from my first two albums. So changing it to a completely different band name didn't make sense. But calling it... Just adding band to it made it clear that it was a group at that point. So then for 1982's Razor Pocket, Jay Shirley's in and out of the band fairly quickly. You do some touring, I believe, with Roy Buchanan a fair amount. Oh, yes, yes. I was uh, Ted Curland, who managed Roy Buchanan, Pat Messini. A lot of uh, guitarists had somehow heard what I was doing and approached me about signing me. And uh, we went on the, we toured quite a bit with Roy Buchanan. And Captain Beefheart as well. Yes, we, uh, the, well, the, the Hampton Grease Band had actually played with the, uh, Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band from that era. And then we ended up doing shows with the Glenn Phillips Band with uh, a later era of the Magic Band. And even touring with him on, uh, we did a leg of his tour with him for his, it was his last tour. The, we played with him in his last uh, performances. Okay. Live performances. By this point, you're releasing Razor Pocket. How's it going between you running the band, touring, and also trying to run this Snowstar Records, your DIY record label? It must have been a lot of work. Well, <laughs> it was it was certainly more than I could handle. You know, people have asked me many times why aren't you more well-known? And, and it obviously was because, uh, not not obviously, but obviously the, the thing of try, of wearing so many hats pulls right. you in a lot of different directions. So it was a lot of work, but I, I 
never begrudged it or uh, felt resentful about having to deal with it or resentful of not having uh, more recognition because I was doing what I wanted to do. Yeah. I, I felt incredibly lucky to, uh, you know, I, I was, one of the things from the Grease Band is we just did what we wanted to do. There was no concern about what's going to sell, what's not going to sell. It was just let whatever's in come out. Yeah. And that's that's how you find truth in music and art and any kind of art. So that's what I wanted to be doing. I felt like there was something more important for me to be gained from playing music than just being a well-known uh, musician. I, I just I felt lucky to be able to just do this and not have any input about do this, do that, make it more commercial, make it more that, to just go my own way, in other words. Well, that's absolutely the, the true measure of success, I would say. On the subject of recognition, this is a question I asked Henry Kaiser, actually, when I spoke to him. We're getting into the era now, around this time, where you're starting to see a lot of the guitar-based magazines coming out. Did you find yourself getting... Uh, recognized in those magazines, and if if not, well, yes. did it bother you that you weren't? Well, well no, they, they, there was a. I remember uh, Dick Varney started a a column that became very well known over the years in Guitar Player about featuring unknown guitarists, and I was the first person he put in that. And then from that, Guitar Player ended up doing feature. Yeah, I know they did at least one feature article, maybe a couple. They used to review the records, give, oh, it, give them really good reviews. Guitar World uh, gave the records very good reviews. I didn't feel uh, cast aside. Um, I, I felt uh, very grateful for the, the reception. I was actually considering how off the beaten path I was, I was very lucky to get the uh, acknowledgement from the press. Rolling Stone reviewed Dark Lights, oh, Razor wow. Pocket. They they, uh, they gave Echoes a four-star review. When I made a Supreme Court record with Jeff Calder, that got a four-star review. So there was lots of press. And, and actually, I, I think the press was sort of uh, very generous because they sort of saw this uh, as an, a guy doing what he wanted to do, an underdog, and they wanted to champion it and support it, and they were very supportive. Right. So on Razor Pocket, you played keys on a few tracks, and then Paul Provost comes into the band, and we're getting into the lineup on the Elevator record. Yes. So Paul, Razor Pocket was made before Paul joined the band, and he joined the band and did some keyboard overdubs on that record. And then from that point, the records we made with Paul were uh, a record called St. Valentine's Day. We recorded a live album, and we made Elevator. And during this period of the band, we were touring a lot. And Doug was our drummer, who was a great, great drummer, but he became very dissatisfied with touring, uh, frustrated that there wasn't more commercial success. Right. And he was uh, pretty regularly regularly floating the idea that he was quitting the band. So the live album, St. Valentine's Day, 
we made very quickly because I thought he was going to be leaving the band and I wanted to record as much of them with him as, as we could. In retrospect, I think that was sort of an act of desperation on my part because those records were made so quickly. St. Valentine's Day we recorded in a c- couple days in a studio and within uh, six weeks or so of that, we made the live album in one at one show. Right. And they're not I think there are worse or weakest records. There are people who like them, and I don't. I don't hate them, but I, I just don't think they're as good as the other records. So we were just playing, and this thing with Doug kept building up. He didn't quit the band after we made those records, but he kept saying he was going to. I was very disappointed with the two prior records, and I thought, well, if this era of the band is going to end, then I, I want it to end on something better than those other two records. So. We went in and we made basically, and I also knew Paul was getting dissatisfied with the band. Lots of touring, it was rough, and also Paul was very heavy techno keyboard oriented, which he was incredible at doing that, and he has a real gift for it. But I didn't feel like it was fitting in with the band that well in, in many ways. It was kind of going off in a different direction. I don't want to say it was a bad direction, but it wasn't what I envisioned for the band initially. So I I just had a feeling the band is going to implode pretty soon. And so I want to try to make a better record, a better recorded record. So we went in the studio and recorded Elevator. And I do think Elevator is a better record than those, although it's not one of my favorite records, not because it's not good, but because to me it's kind of a slicker sounding that I wanted than our other records and how I perceived it, the music and wanted it to be. But nonetheless, it was a, it was a better record than the other ones. So after we finished that record, Doug and Paul did both quit the band. Um, and I had this record and I was going to put it out myself. And I am friends with Henry Kaiser. I had uh, I've made some albums with him, played on some of his albums. He he made a record called "If Those Those Who Know History Are Doomed to Repeat It." that I think came out on SST, it did, yeah. where he did a, a remake of Dark Star and the other one by the Grateful Dead. And he, had, he asked me to come to New York and play on those cuts with him. And he told me about SST and that they were putting out some instrumental records. Or, and so I contacted Greg Ginn and asked him if he'd be interested in putting out Elevator. And uh, thankfully he was. And ironically, I think it's probably the least appropriate of all our records to have been released on SST just because of the sort of, that it's a slicker sounding sort of record. And our other records have a sensibility that I think, even though they're not vote, even though they're instrumental records, they sort of connect more with SST. But ironically, this was the one that ended up being on SST. And I I was very grateful for him doing, for for him putting that out. Yeah. Uh, You credit in your book, George Pappas as being part of the sound on the elevator yes, record. The, re- the sound of the record. George Pappas has sadly passed away, an incredible engineer. And George, George uh, was responsible for that record sounding so good. I do think it's a great sounding record. I do have uh, some reservations about the, the, the musical context to a degree, just a, a small degree, but I do. But he made he did an incredible job recording that record 
and every record I made after that, um, which uh, it will probably go into, but Scratched by the Rabbit, Walking Through Walls, Angel Sparks, and the first Supreme Court record, I recorded all of those with George. Okay. And those are probably, uh, in, in many ways, some of my favorite albums that I've ever done. And George was a, a, a big part of that. And I, I, the, the last record, The Dark Parade, um, wasn't made with George simply because he wasn't around. He, he had passed away. But once, once I connected with George, he had a very intuitive sense of what it was I was doing and the best ways to record it. And I and it also worked really well with me because I had very particular eccentric ways that I recorded certain things myself. There was a certain way I recorded the guitar that I wanted to sound a certain way. And so we just had a, a great uh, working relationship. Okay. Now, on the subject of the sound of this record, I would say some of it is very keyboard heavy. Is that more due to the fact, like a track, for example, like Vista Cruiser, that based on the fact that it's written by Paul? Yes. And Paul was a great keyboardist, and, and I thought Vista Cruiser, for instance, worked really well in the band. But there's uh, other aspects of the keyboards. We just it 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 just wasn't uh, what what I wanted to do with the band guitar wise, and what Paul wanted to do with the band keyboard wise, were just two different things. I'm not saying one was better than the other, but. Sometimes they clash. Sometimes they work really well together. Vista Cruiser was an example where it was a different thing for the band, but I thought it was a great thing um, for the band. But some of the other things, Bill Ray and I both were, were trying to steer it away from being quite so keyboard heavy. But at the same time, Paul was a member of the band, and I wanted him to feel comfortable. So when we went in and made that record, like I was saying, I was thinking, well, I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to make another keyboard record like this, but I'm going to do the best record I can with Paul and include him uh, in it and let him do this that he wants to do so that the band goes out on a high note. I would say Bill's fretless bass playing is a big part of the sound on this record as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bill, Bill, to me, just... <laughs> In a lot of ways, it's Bill's record, and I say that in the very best possible way. Bill's bass playing throughout the uh, his playing with the band, it just got better and better, and he's just an unbelievable musician. And by the time we got to Elevator, the bass playing and what he was doing was so phenomenal. And then having George knowing just his expertise at recording the bass and the drums and getting it to sound the way it sounded, the clarity is there in a way that it had never been there before, and it becomes so clear. To me, Bill's really the strongest thing on the record, and uh, it's unbelievable how he sounds and what he does on the album. Now that you're kind of in the SST orbit, did you end up on any weird Bills, like with, say, the Meat Puppets or any of those kinds of bands? You know, we didn't. Um, and I wish we had, but it didn't happen, not because there wouldn't be a willingness. If I had been based on the West Coast, I'm sure that would have happened, but there was such a distance involved. Um, but I did identify, you know, we played with lots of bands that, over the years that were very different than what we did. And, and there was never 
a problem with that. Like bands that that you would have thought of doing shows with Black Flag or the Minutemen or, or the Meat Puppets. We did shows with bands like that, but yeah. we didn't end up doing them with them. And I wish we had, but we didn't. Okay. The cover art. It's a photograph by Hugh Fenian. Do you know where the photo came from, and do you know what it's a picture of? You know, it's. I, I did at one point, and I'm. It was. It's. It's. A, it's a real thing. <laughs> you know, he, he's a great photographer, and he had taken. He just. Katie, my wife, at that time worked in uh, stage managing stage managing shows. And, and she knew you as a photographer. And I was talking about looking for a uh, cover for the album. And she said, well, you should look through Hugh's uh, photos because he's a great photographer. And I went and looked through them, and I, I saw that picture, and it just summed up to me everything about the band at that time. Because, and I think it was, taken, it was taken in another country. Mm-hmm. It might have been India or some eastern country some some place overseas and i think what he described is that it was like this um thing pointing towards the heavens kind of like this astrological thing pointing up that it had some kind of symbolism in that regard and to me it just symbolized this uh beautiful thing going up to nowhere and that's how I saw the band. I really felt connected to everybody in the band. I love the experience I had with Doug and Paul. But at the same time, I just intuitively knew they were going to be leaving. So that's how I saw the band at this point. When I saw this, I just identified with it as being what this record was about. But it was taken, it, it's like a big structure built inside this sort of building and this stairway and this thing that you see going up leading to some point in the stars and supposedly pointing at some sort of constellation at some certain time of year that was had some sort of significance. It does work really well with the with the album title, Elevator. Yeah. 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 I, I felt really lucky stumbling on that because it was hard for me to think of something that would work as a cover for what the record was and the fact that the picture is so professionally taken and and looks so uh just slick in a way but not phony slick but that that's sort of how i hear the record as well if you know what i mean i know exactly what you mean talk to me a little bit if you can glenn about your gear at this time what kind of guitar were you predominantly playing are you a pedal guy stuff like that i'm I'm really interested i I do i i am a pedal guy you know i've been playing the same guitars on my records, I have two L6 Gibson L6s that I stripped of all the parts, and you know, like the pickups, the tuning keys, the knobs, everything. I I just stripped the guitars. I like the way the guitars felt. I had some old patent applied for Gibson pickups from the 50s. I used Rose's front pickups. Yeah. I used uh, Telecaster pickups in the back, and on one of the guitars. I put a uh, vibrato bar from an old jazz master, Fender Jazzmaster vibrato arm on it. When you hear the uh, tremolo arm stuff, those sort of bends, that's what that is. Okay. And as far as a rack, I've had basically the same pedals in my that I've been using 
you know, when Boss started making pedals, uh, like in the, around 1980, a guy brought me the first overdrive pedal that they made. Oh, and yeah. the first time I used that was on the album Razor Pocket, and that's still the same pedal that I'm using in my rack today. And I, I have like six old Boss pedals. Uh, five of them are old Japanese pedals from very early Boss era. I have an old Ibanez digital delay from the early 80s. That's still in my rack. I've tried out tons of other pedals, but these are the ones I still like. And one thing I've taken out of my rack that you you uh, hear on Elevator and some of my other records was I had an I got a, in 1980 I got a uh, MXR pitch transposer and that was the first uh, pitch transposing device that I was aware of. I went inside it and found a way to jack up the feedback inside the uh, unit and. I don't know how familiar you are with the album Dark Lights, but there's a song on there called Flyback, yeah, and it sounds, it. Like a motorcycle, it sounds like a motorcycle revving up yeah. um, at the beginning of the song, and that, I did that with the pitch transposer, okay. uh, that effect. And I've still, I still have the pitch transposer. I don't use it in the rack because I don't use it as much. I used to do a lot of stuff where I, I would set the pitch transposer to different pitches and then flip the... Uh, the mix knob all the way over to the effect. And I set up my foot switch so I could rock my feet back and forth on the pedals and go from the pitch of my guitar to the change pitch on the pitch transposer and back and forth. So so you'd hear this sort of like uh, digital sort of sound of like, you know, like the notes yeah. jumping yeah. around. Henry Kaiser is a, a big fan of that. I remember him calling me up. He wanted to interview me for guitar player to figure out how I was, do, how I was doing some <laughs> of this stuff. And he's told me that I'm the first person that ever did that. That's something that's very uh, popular now, that a lot of people have done things. There's lots of pitch transposing pedals where people rock back and forth with these different pitches and jump around. Um, and, and Henry always, uh, last time I... I talked to him a few years ago, and he said, well, have you still got the pitch transposer? I said, yeah, but I don't do that stuff anymore. I just I found ways to do it with my hands, and I like it better. He said, I can't believe you're not doing it anymore. You were the first person who ever did it. And he, he's still uh, into it and, and does it great and, and is really good at it and does all sorts of really cool, wild things with it. So uh, as far as I know, I, I was the first person to – to do that but that was the pitch transposer and and but i'm not doing it that's the only thing that's out of the rack and so over all these years i keep trying out all these different pedals but i keep going back to this stuff right there's some great footage of you on on youtube of playing with a hammer how did that start you know there was a period when we were just touring all the time i i'd say starting in the early 80s and you'd things just get wild yeah. you know the show the shows got wilder and wilder and i can't remember exactly what it was if there was a it seemed like the first time i did it was just at a band practice uh that th there might have been a hammer there but i remember at some point there was a hammer on a stage and i just picked it up and started playing the guitar with it and then from that point on 
all these people started coming to the show and yelling out. And, and this happened, I think the first time it happened was in New England. And these guys with these heavy New England accents, I was born in New England, and I, so this isn't me making fun of them, I related to it. They come to the shows and they go, hammer, hammer, hammer. <laughs> and they bring hammers with them and they just throw them on stage. And they would not let me off the stage till I played the guitar with the hammer. Right. And it it got to where I had this massive collection of hammers, and I'd just be giving them to people. So, the, 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 you know, how it happened was one thing, but how it continued and grew was those fans we were lucky enough to have had in New England that were incredibly supportive and just had this great vibe and spirit and were coming and yelling, hammer, hammer, and throwing <laughs> me hammers. Okay. Let's talk a bit about the book that you wrote. It's a great book. Um, you're pretty candid oh, in it. You're pretty candid in there about your some of your struggles with with mental health, and it, it's always great to hear somebody that's willing to talk about that stuff because it's very helpful to other people that are that are also struggling. Uh, is it something that's easy to talk about for you, or was that difficult for you to write? Um, you know, I the book I started actually the. The begin the gen, genesis of the book was when the Hampton Grease Band. Well, first when Echoes came out, there was a double CD compilation called Echoes uh, on on mine of of, of my uh, earlier records that ESD put out, and I wrote a history of the band for that booklet. So I wrote that history of the band, and it ended up involving talking to people in the band and getting gathering stories. Then when the Hampton Grease Band was reissued on Sony, I wrote a history of the Grease Band for that, which was the same thing. So I had these two histories for these booklets that I had gathered all this information for, but I felt like I kind of wanted to write a book, but I felt like if I was going to write a book from this, I had to tell the story behind the music and not just the story about the music. And behind the music, very much, uh, with the Grease Band, I'd say with our own band, and I'd say with many bands, the stories of of many of these bands are uh, a group of people, and this was certainly the case with my experience, a group of people coming from dysfunctional families, forming a new dysfunctional family, and trying to work out their issues uh, from the past, by recreating those circumstances in the present and seeing if they can come out with a different result. And so there's a, to me, that's what music is about. It's a self-discovery process. And that's what I always felt, uh, that's why I always felt so determined to just play the music and let it come out however it came out and not worry, worry about how successful it was because there was a benefit to that. And when I wrote the book, it was the same thing. Let the truth come out. Tell the real story. There's a benefit to that. There's something to be learned about it for me. And hopefully there's something that will help someone else going through the same thing. That was a big impetus for me for putting out the book and being candid in it and and getting it out there. Had 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 I not had that impetus, I might have been happy to have just had it been histories of the band and a couple of booklets, there had to be something more behind it to me to make it worth doing. And that's the same way I felt about the records. There has to be something more coming out 
than just a product to make it worth making the record and putting it out there. Some editions of it also come with a, a new studio album, The Dark Parade, and a Lost at Sea yes. reunion DVD. Yes. Um, at some point, I'm trying to remember what year it was. I guess it was 2015, or leading up to 2015. I got a call from uh, Nigel Cross, uh, who has a label in England called Shag Rat Records. And he asked, as I... You know, we talked about Lost at Sea earlier and it being a, a, a popular album in England, popular enough for Virgin to sign me. Right. Well, Nigel called up and said, are you going to do anything for the uh, 40th anniversary of Lost at Sea? Do you have any plans? And I said, no, I don't have any plans at all. And he said, well, I'm a really big fan of a record. I have a label and I would love to put out a double vinyl uh, reissue. Do you have any unreleased stuff? from this era. And I said, yes, I have the demo tapes from Lost at Sea. I have some live recordings that I'd love to put out. So uh, Shag Rat released a double vinyl album, one album being the original album and the other being the unreleased stuff. They released it in England, Feeding Tube put it out in the U.S. Surprisingly, they both of them, sold, both the U.S. and the overseas version sold out. And then Nigel got in touch with me and said, you know, I saw you at the Rainbow Theater when you toured with Steve Hillage. I would give anything to be able to have that, uh, that recording to put out as an album. And I said, I have the tapes. It was recorded on the same mobile recording studio that Stairway to Heaven was recorded on. Oh, wow. It was the Rolling Stones mobile recording unit. Yeah. They recorded albums on it. Led Zeppelin recorded on it. And I have that. I have those tapes. So then he released Glenn Phillips Live at the Rainbow. So okay. uh, those were that's how those came out. And we're getting back. What was the original question again? <laughs> well, I'm just asking about your. I guess I'm. I'm asking about the Lost at Sea reunion DVD. Yes. Okay. So okay, I knew there was some connection to a question. <laughs> I went off. I went off the beaten path. Yes. So after we put those out. I thought, well, this would be really cool when, when this gets released. If I got the original band back together that recorded this album and played a live show. So that's what we did. And since I knew this was going to be a one-time occurrence, a, a friend of ours, Barry Mills, who's a professional film guy who works in television film, he filmed it. He was He's also the guy who filmed the Hampton Grease Band uh, live DVD when we did a reunion. Right. And so he recorded this Lost at Sea DVD. And then as it happened, I had the book done. I had I had finished a new album, The Dark Parade, that I've been working on a long time. And he finished the uh, DVD, uh, editing it all together. And so it just made sense to put them all together. So the version of the book that people can buy in bookstores and other outlets does not include the CD and the DVD, because there was no way to get them to manufacture the book and include the CD and DVD. We had to insert them ourselves. We, you get these adhesive sleeves and put them inside each cover right. and then put the CD and DVD in it. So the ones that we sell on the website for $30 include the CD and DVD. And then if you go to the bookstore or order the book online, 
the book the book is twenty dollars but doesn't include the cd and dvd now much of the stuff we've been talking about today is out of print i think almost all of it including the echoes compilation yes any plans to make some of that stuff available well i you know it's tricky (laughs) manufacturing things now and not going in a deep deep hole yeah because everybody's streaming so uh, most of that echoes for instance and the hampton grease band are all available streaming on uh online but as far as manufacturing them again i don't know if or when that would happen i'd love to do that again but at this point if i was to put it out myself it's really hard for me to imagine getting uh getting back just even the production costs it it just seems uh there's just so few people buying product. Uh, one of the reasons I decided to put the uh, CD and the DVD inside the book and, and sell them so cheaply is because I realized if I release these individually now, very few people are buying the stuff or buying CDs and DVDs at this point. I mean, I guess they do if you're the most popular act at the point at the time, but if you're not, it's it's a it's a tough slog. So that's. The, the only way I could find that I could think of to actually get them out there in a better format than streaming, because obviously the CD sounds better than streaming, was to put them in the book and make them really cheap. Right. And where can people find that book? Uh, if you go to my website, glennphillips.com, and that's Glenn with two N's, G-L-E-N-N-P-H-I-L-L. IPS.com. Uh, the the book is available on there, and there is another Glenn Phillips uh, who spells his name with one N, who's a musician. He's a singer songwriter f- from the band Toad the Wet Sprocket. So people get us confused a lot, which is okay. why I always say two N's. Gotcha. Any new music from the Glenn Phillips uh, band that we might get to hear? Well, you know, we're we're always working on new things. But I just I just finished the new album, uh, and and the book and the DVD. And at this point, there's no way to get together with anybody. Right. Yeah. So you know what I've been working on at this point was uh, a lot of people have heard me tell stories. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Lost at Sea DVD. I tell a couple stories at that show that were from the book. And people liked it when I told stories. So a bunch of people have asked me, am I ever going to do an audio book? So since the band can't practice or play at this point, I've been uh, recording in the process of recording an an audio book, which won't be done any or out anytime soon. It's a long project, but that's, that's my pandemic recording project at this moment. I see. And it's the audio book version of echoes. Yes. Yes. Okay. And uh, and 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 you were telling me that this uh, that this project you're just you're interviewing everybody who put out a record for SST. Uh, not interviewing everybody. We're um, I have a co-host, and we kind of do a we do our own thing, and then we kind of drop the interviews into the episode. Sometimes we don't have a guest. Oh. Sometimes it's just the two of us. But yeah, we're going through the entire uh, catalog in order. Wow! So you're doing the, the the entire catalog, album by album, which is a massive, massive catalog. It is, yeah, it is. 
But we're at and number one thirty six. So <laughs> is 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 Greg involved with any of this? No, we haven't. We reached out and didn't hear back. He's pretty reclusive these days, I think. Is is now? Do, what do you get the? And and this doesn't. This can be off the record. But I was just curious. What is Greg? What's the general consensus about Greg's connection with the label at this point, and with the history of the label and the artists? Is it strained or is it uh, good? Uh, well, um, usually people say I, when they will ask about Greg, they want to go off the record. <laughs> so I'm used to that. Uh -huh. uh, this is a common question I get from SST folks because there seems to be two two kinds of people. People who are happy that he put out their record. It tends to be the people that maybe wouldn't have sold that many records in the first place and were just happy to have a connection to right. the label and to... And then there's the people that feel they got ripped off, and well, you know, I, I and and it's a, you can um, you can use your own choice about whether you want to use this or any of this or not, because my perspective might be a little different than uh, some of the general consensus. My my feeling is is that Greg has been sort of unfairly aligned at having unethical business practices because of uh, royalty statements. Is that the general consensus? I would say so, yeah. Well, I just want to add to this thought, and, and I don't want to, um, this is not me trying to say something bad about uh, people who feel that they deserved uh, something more, but, you know, I've been on, over the years, 15 labels. Yeah. From major labels like Columbia, Virgin, smaller labels like SST, Demon Records, uh, ESD, but a total of 15 labels. And Greg's, the way Greg handled those royalty statements was no different than any of them. Because the reality is, keeping up with royalty statements, especially if you're an independent label, is incredibly cost prohibitive and time consuming. You mm -hmm. look at the amount of records that he put out, the amount of uh, time, you know, just the, the amount of product that was coming out. There is literally no way to have kept up with putting those records out and kept up with accounting for each and every release. Mm -hmm. And even the way major labels work and work back then is you would get in advance and if by chance you became a big enough artist and sold enough records to where you were making a ton of money, the only way you were going to get it was to hire a lawyer and go in and force an accounting and deal with the label. And that's the way you get the money. Even major labels. You go talk to anybody with major labels, that's typically how they got their money. What usually happened was you'd get in advance, and if you sold a lot of records... Then you, when you did the next record with them, you get a bigger advance. Oh, yeah. And if do you see what I'm saying? It's like this is, this is how the labels function. For better or worse, this is the reality of the record business. And people, um, I understand that there were artists on SST who sold a lot more records than I did and probably feel like they should have gotten more uh they should have gotten more money. But 
no matter what label they were on, they would have been dealing with the same thing. And honestly, when I look back at these record labels, all of them, all, all 15 of these labels that I'm talking about, that I didn't really get uh, royalty statements from, I got advances from them. I never went in debt making records. They paid for the records. That world is gone. Yeah, it is. You don't get yeah. anything. For, you don't get anything for records now. You get nothing. And it's like you talking about. Well, are you going to reissue uh, Echoes or some of these things? I'd love to reissue them, but the fact is, all that's going to happen is anything that I put out, people are going to put online, and they're all going to get it for free. I'm not trying to talk negative about. Uh, the world at large. I realize we're all creatures of habit, and 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 people are out of the habit of of paying for records and paying for music. But the fact is that world that Greg was part of, he's responsible for all those records coming out. Yeah, he made that happen, and that was an enormous amount of work. And I don't see when I look at his catalog, I don't see how in the world he could have kept up royalty statements, and. Although, again, I'm going to repeat it, 15 labels. I never got a royalty stay from, from anybody. I, I got advances, but never anything after that. The Hampton Grease Band has been put out three times. It was put out again in 2015. It was put out again in 2019. I thank the people who put it out, but I didn't expect and knew I would never get a penny from, from it. Uh, when they, when Real Gone Music reissued it recently from in 2019, they contacted Sony. They paid Sony a licensing fee, and they released it. And I wrote them and thanked them for doing it. But there's no way. I, I knew there's no way I'm going to get any money. So I think a lot of this uh, grousing about Greg is coming from a lot of people that had never put out records before, and I understand that, and they had expectations of how it was going to work, but it didn't work that way. And they've taken out their ire on him over the years and not put it in the perspective of Greg wasn't doing anything any different than any label was doing, except he was busting his ass and working a lot harder and getting a lot more records out that weren't making much money. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that we've complained about uh, myself and my co-host Ryan the most is a lot of this stuff is okay for example your record he maybe did one pressing of it or, or whatever he did and then never repressed it once it was sold out some right. of the other stuff like Husker Du for example is still in print because he's he's still selling it what I would like to see is some of the the stuff that he's no longer pressing being released back to the band so they can do something with it at, and at the very least put it up on streaming sites so people can hear it because a lot of the stuff we're talking about is unavailable to even listen to on, on streaming and that's a frustration for a lot of people, I think. Well, uh, uh, and I totally understand that, but you know what that comes down to? And again, this is I'm not, I'm not uh, belittling the bands at all because... They, a lot of them went into this, and it was their first-time experience. But the what the determining factor on that is if you kept a copy of the tapes, period. Yeah. If they don't have a copy of the tapes, if they sent the tape off, it never comes back. Yeah. Never. Uh, and I so, guess that's if it even still exists, maybe. Yes, and so so what 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 the uh, the reason. 
I was able to re-release uh, Lost at Sea and all these records going up was simply because I made copies of all the tapes. Hmm. And they weren't even copies. I, I When I would go in and make a master tape and record the album, I made another mix. Actually, I usually made two other mixes that were also master tapes and kept them. So I had like three copies of the master of all these albums. And that's the only reason I was able to re-release it. And if those bands... Uh, and I'm not, and I'm not faulting them for not doing this because unless you've been through this stuff, you don't start thinking like this. Right. But it, it's not. You can rarely get the tapes back from anybody. For instance, music to eat on Columbia, that never would have come out. Well, I was trying to get that re-released for years. We didn't have the master tapes, and uh, trying to get that re-released was uh, a nightmare, really. And then Brendan O'Brien who was a very successful record producer in Atlanta yeah. at the time, Sony gave him his own label and wanted him to uh, be signed to their label because he was so successful. And then he and then I t talked to him, Jeff Calder, who I, I play in a band with called Supreme Court. We've made a couple albums together. He went and talked to Brendan and told him that I had written this booklet and gotten pictures together. And Brendan was the only reason the Grease Band came out. But all those records from Lost at Sea on, even the reissue, if you look at Echoes, you'll see that there's songs on there from Elevator. Yep. And it was just because I had the tape. Oh, um, and and you, you see what I mean? Like, you know, I don't think Greg, uh, if it's a band that's really successful, yes, Greg should be trying to work something out with them. And, and he should be uh, communicating with them. But a lot of these bands that um that weren't gigantic, that that were just sort of break-even sort of situations or break-even at best, I, I seriously doubt Greg would be... I don't know Greg that well, but does he have any history of going after somebody for re-releasing something? Uh, he, yeah, I, I would say yes oh, to he that, does? I think. He I think does? so, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well then that, I, you know, like with these smaller labels um, that I've dealt with, when I put something out or, or put it out on, uh, you know, a lot of the records I put out myself, but like when I put the songs on Elevator, from Elevator on the record, Greg wasn't going after me. I didn't I didn't have anything weird. And I would, I would think a lot of bands would probably fall into that category. I just, my feeling is, is, and again, I don't know Greg that well, but from what I've heard, he has sort of uh, faded in, into being incommunicative. But I have—I just imagine a lot of that came from a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the the bad talking about him and him feeling like I did all this stuff, I did all this work, I got all these bands out, and everybody's pissed off at me about it. Yeah, you could be right about that. But yeah. I, I don't know. But I just did want to add in. My personal experience with Greg was always really good. I was really grateful for him to put out the record. I was grateful to be connected to his label. And when I go and look at what he did, how many records he put out, how much how much of a seismic shift he created on his own within the music industry, I kind of stand in awe of what he did. I'm kind of amazed and, and, and have admiration for him. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very true, and, and that's a great place to leave it today. 
Glenn, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Really enjoyed talking to you. Yes, it was great talking to you. Yes, and if there's anything else you want to ask me about, just let me know, get in touch. Just get in touch. It was great talking to you. Same here. Thanks so much, Glenn. All right. That was awesome. Great to hear from the man himself. Um, what a history, too. Um, I, I mean, I'm not surprised that it came up, but the Hampton Grease Band, uh, I've been a fan of that record for, you know, not my entire life, but certainly around the time that I really started digging deep into Zappa and Beefheart, and uh, glad to hear some nuggets on that. And uh, also great to hear uh, about, like, where this record came from, because, like, you know, Glenn, Glenn says it himself. It's a pretty slick sounding record. It's, you know, if I'm being completely honest, like it's a bit more slick than is like usually up my alley. But it was a good listen this week with the context uh, from the interview. Yeah. Yeah. A, f- a few things for me. Obviously, if anybody has not heard that Hampton Grease Band record, Music to Eat, they should check it out. Especially if you're a fan of like Captain Beefheart and Zappa. It's awesome. Talk about ahead of its time. Like oh yeah. Decades. Decades ahead of its time. You always hear people say like Flowers of Romance by Pill is the most insane record to ever come out on a on a major label and things like that. This record p- predates that one by probably 10 years or more. It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh let's see what else. Some great quotes that he had like I just love his perspective on his career, you know. He says yeah. I was doing what I wanted to do. I felt incredibly lucky, you know, talking about letting whatever is in you come out. And that's how you find truth in music and art. Like just, he says something along the lines of like, you know, feeling like he fit in with SST's aesthetic. And I know exactly what he means. He was just, there was no compromise musically for him, you know? And, and, Imagine how many times he's was told over his career if he just added a singer to the band, he would, you know, he would have a bigger career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was interesting to hear you ask him about how like whether he felt as though his work was recognized, uh, because it sounds like you know for what it was he felt very recognized. Well, and, and I thought I thought that was great to hear from his perspective. Well, I'll tell you. I always ask the people we interview for anything that they have, because some people collect that stuff, and unfortunately many don't. He did, and he sent me a whole bunch of reviews for this record in particular, and articles about the band, and it got great reviews, and he he got a lot of respect. He toured really hard, man. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, all the gearheads out there, too, will love to hear about uh, his Franken... Gibson too that he built and it's like it's a pretty pretty famous uh guitar um and it was interesting hearing how he kind of slapped that thing together yeah what about the end of the interview Ryan where he kind of wanted to defend Greg a little bit yeah well I mean I I was happy to hear him say that not because like I'm a I want to be a defender or anything I I really always try to try to be a fan of the bands and a fan of what this label did and not, you know, get too much into the controversy, you know, of it all around Greg Ginn. But I thought that, that what Glenn did 
maybe more than defend, was just provide some perspective. And he's got some legit perspective that I thought was interesting to have out there and to provide balance to the narrative or a little bit more balance because all you hear about is, you know, people shitting all over Greg Ginn and nobody's perfect. Um, and he put out a ton of music that we're still appreciating to this day. So I thought, and I also thought like, you know, if you speak up that way, um, there's a lot of people who might just start shitting all over you, but I don't think, I don't think Glenn gives two shits what people think about his opinion. <laughs> and I, and I think, I think that that's awesome. I, I really respected uh, Glenn by sharing his like honest opinion on it. Me too. And I mean, it's not a topic considering this is an SST podcast that comes up too often from us. I've never met Greg Ginn. Uh, I don't feel like qualified to speak on the subject. No, me either. And I try not to generally ask the question. Some people want to talk about it. Many don't. Lots ask me, you hear me reference it in the interview, lots of people want to ask me if I know anything or if I've heard anything from other bands. Some I have, some I haven't. But, you know, it's not something I ever ask about. We've always tried to keep this about the music because that's the most important thing in my opinion. Yep, Exactly. Yeah, so I I don't know. I mean, I thought I thought it it was good to hear not because I agree with one side or the other, just just to hear, you know, a uh I think uh, an opinion that's very credible. I'll put it that way. It's a learned opinion for sure. Yeah. yeah. Lots of credibility with Glenn. Okay, I'm going to give you some more history lesson part 1 here, Ryan. Here's my little bio. And a lot of this is called from his awesome book, Echoes. The Hampton Grease Band, My Life, My Music, and How I Stopped Having Panic Attacks, which is really good. And as you've heard in the interview, you can you can buy it with, with the uh, new album and the DVD on his website. Okay. Glenn Phillips was born in 1950. His family lived outside of Newport, Rhode Island until 1962, when at age 12, they moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Around this time, he's starting to get into early rock and roll artists like Jerry Lee Lewis and Bo Diddley. By the time he's in high school, he's met Bruce Hampton and Harold Kelling, and they're deep into artists like Paul Butterfield with guitarist Mike Bloomfield. The Doors, he specifically says in his book that the first Doors record is the greatest debut album of all time. Mm. Captain Beefheart, The Birds, John Coltrane, Ravi Shankar, Pharaoh Sanders, Hendrix, The Dead, Dylan. At age 16, he starts playing guitar. After a few lineup changes, they soon team up with Jerry Fields and Mike Holbrook to form the Hampton Grease Band. And they're playing with bands like The Dead, Chicago Spirit, The Allman Brothers, Mountain, Ted Nugent, B.B. King, Jay Giles Band. They played a ton of shows. They released the avant-garde double album Music to Eat on Columbia in 1971, supposedly, Ryan, the second lowest selling album in the label's history, second only to a yoga instructional record. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's since become somewhat of a cult classic, usually compared to Zappa and Beefheart or Per Ubu. 
I've heard it yeah. compared to many yeah. times. Fair, yep. The band starts to disintegrate, and in 1973, Bruce Hampton moves to California to try out for Zappa's band, and the Hampton Grease Band splits up. He talks a lot in his book about his parents' alcoholism and the dysfunction that resulted from it. Also in his senior year, he got his girlfriend pregnant, and they gave the daughter his daughter up for adoption, which haunted him for, for a long, long time. On his father's own 50th birthday, he took his own life. He says in the book, I, be, I began to perceive of my father's suicide as a large ball of energy. I felt like it would either get on top of me and crush me, or I would get on top of it and be lifted higher than I'd ever been before. I also had an intuitive sense that music was somehow the key to helping me understand and cope with what had happened. I reached for my guitar and my mind was filled with ideas. I wanted to create emotionally honest instrumental music that was timeless and would retain its meaning over the years, regardless of trends or fashion. He forms his own label, Snowstar Records, and releases Lost at Sea in 1975. Then it was reissued by Virgin, and again in 2015 on Shagrat Records as a double LP set with unreleased material. Swim in the Wind came in 1977, also under the name Glenn Phillips, also on Virgin. Then he kind of morphed into the Greg Phillips band with kind of an, a revolving lineup, but uh, usually Doug Landsberg on drums and Bill Rhea on bass. They released three great records, Dark Lights, 1980 on his Snowstar Records, Razor Pocket, 82 Snowstar, St. Valentine's Day, 1994. 1984 Snowstar Records and Live 1985 on Shanachi Records. Now he mentions in the interview, Ryan, that this was like his least compatible record for SST. Yeah, which exactly. I, which I totally agree with because those records are just full of ripping guitar work. Like any fan of Gin would be all over those records for sure. And there's only just shades of it on this one. Okay, a few more things here. There's a double CD called Echoes in 1992. It contains all of Lost at Sea, almost all of Swim in the Wind, and tracks off of all of the subsequent LPs, minus the live one. It's only got two off of St. Valentine's Day, which is a much better record than he gives it credit for in the interview. It has one of my favorite Glenn Phillips tracks on it called Maybe. As mentioned, he hooked up with Bill Rhea for Lost at Sea, although Bill only plays acoustic guitar for that one. But that after that, he asks him to switch to bass for Swim in the Wind. Bill brings in drummer Doug Landsberg from his pre previous band, Labyrinth. Keyboardists kind of come and go, and while recording Razor Pocket, they bring in Paul Provost. Paul's known for uh, being a pretty wild keyboardist. He was always doing handstands while playing and hanging like from his feet from the rafters and playing upside down. Glenn was known for, you know, a pretty wild stage show, doing super high kicks, playing with a hammer, you know, wearing knee pads because he was always like jumping around so much. They're a pretty high energy band for sure. Nice. There are some hey. great videos on YouTube. Hey, a very, a very obscure uh, test for you real quick now that you mentioned knee pads. 
who is the bass player <laughs> play who wears knee pads uh his name's frank i can't remember his last name but he's in a band called like hell it's his name is frank throw up yeah <laughs> oh we used to see that band a lot they were awesome oh yeah yeah okay as he mentions in the interview, by the time of the live and St. Vitus Day records, he's getting the sense that Paul is unhappy and Doug is openly talking about quitting the band. So he decides to try and make one last attempt before the band implodes and the result is Elevator. Here's what he says in the book about Paul. He was heavily inf into synthesizers and sometimes gravitated towards sounds that Bill and I didn't think worked well with the band. Des despite the fact that the three of us we're all very close personally. Our conflicting views about the keyboard sounds were causing some friction between us. Mm. Here's another thing. The songwriting credits on the previous LPs are almost entirely Glenn's with a couple per album credited to, credited to Bill. None by Paul prior to this record. So I feel like this one was definitely a concession to, to Paul. He's got, yeah. he's got th three songwriting credits on this one. Yeah, Glenn, Glenn said as much in the interview too, right? Yeah. Uh, the band split up after Elevator. Paul go, goes on to form a band called Tone Poets. I'm uncertain if Doug kept playing music. Bill and Glenn carried on with new musicians and changed the name just back to Glenn Phillips. They released Snatched by the Rabbit in 1990, Walking Through Walls, 1996, Angel Sparks, 2003, The Dark Parade, 2019. Glenn also formed a band called Supreme Court with his friend Jeff Calder of a band called The Swimming Pool Cues. Uh, Jeff also does a f vocals on a few tracks on the Glenn Phillips Live record. Uh, they, the Swimming or sorry, Supreme Court released an album in '93 and called Supreme Cor Court Goes Electric, and also another one in 2010 called Sun Hex. Glenn has also played with Henry Kaiser and. They released an album together in 2003 called Guitar Party. And another one called Electric Willie, which is an all-star tribute to Willie Dixon, also featuring Elliot Sharp, Melvin Gibbs, Ryan. Ah, cool. Rollins Band, uh, and a zillion other projects. And there's also a bunch of other people on that Willie Dixon tribute. And we'll also be seeing Glenn again on SST 198, Henry Kaiser's Those Who Know History Are Doomed to Repeat It. Swimming pool cues might be one of the better band names of all time. <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah. Oh, it's good. Do you want to get into the tracks, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I definitely do. Should I give you a couple of Spaceman spiels about Glenn first? What do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, lay okay. those on me. Save the okay. No Age one for when we get to Vista Cruiser, though. Okay. All right. Well, here's the one out of the SST catalog. And I'm so happy I have... I think this is like probably one of the last SST catalogs before they stopped giving a description because it has like almost, it has like 200 descriptions in it from the Spaceman. It's just a treasure trove. But here is the one about Elevator. It says, Features in Guitar Player, Guitar World, Modern Musician, and just about every serious music magazine around attest to both the beauty and grace of Glenn's phenomenal playing. The music is all instrumental and is recorded beautifully. 
flowing music for the inquiring mind. That's the uh, that's the spiel. You can get it on LP, cassette, and CD. Yeah. Out of this catalog, anyways. All right, history lesson part two. Let's do it. History lesson part two. Okay, so the record starts with a track called Micro, written by Glenn Phillips. Doug kind of gets us started with a great drum sound. The whole record has a great drum sound. Some of the other stuff's a little slick. Some of the bass playing is kind of got some chorus on it that makes it kind of dates it. And the keys are are very dated for sure. Some of the mm-hmm. keyboard sounds. Right off the bat here, the sound is very different from Glenn's other records. The keys are driving the melody. Glenn doesn't even really come in until about a minute into the song, but when he does, it's pretty explosive. Lots of his pitch transposer trick he talks about in the interview here some of his trademark whammy bar action that he's really good at uh one of the one of the articles he sent me is from guitar player actually issue 219 march 1988 they describe the song as eddie cochran meets dixie dregs fusion and interesting yeah the dixie dregs and jeff beck in particular his fusion albums Blow by Blow and Wired are two that get mentioned quite often. Another review noted a Calypso feel to this one. Yeah, there are a number of songs on here that have that Calypso Caribbean type feel. Um, I don't know if you caught that as well. I'm sure you did. Yeah, I did. Okay, the next track is called Sex Messiah, written by Glenn. Interesting that Glenn wrote this one, as again, the melody is all keys driven. Sounds like Glenn's playing a 12-string. A Bill takes a cool cool solo on the fretless bass. Mm-hmm. Guitar Player Magazine says, this song has a Randy twang <laughs> to it. <laughs> yeah. It's an odd song title. I was expecting something a bit raunchier. Yeah, no, not at all. Especially when the, I mean, when the fretless bass solo comes in, you're like, Sex Messiah? Yeah. Really? Okay. Again, this is a good example of how this is the least appropriate album for SST. You will not find stuff like this really on any of his other records. Yep. Okay, track three, Inca, Silver, Metallic. Bill wrote this one. Kind of a tribal, atmospheric vibe with a heavy-on-the-chorus bass line kicking in after about a minute. It's an okay song, uh, but I come to Glenn Phillips' records looking for some wild-ass guitar playing. Yeah, it only happens a few times on this record, sadly. Yeah. This song is one of the ones they chose for the Echoes compilation. There's only three off of this on that on that comp. Okay, track four is called Arlo. This is one of the ones written by Paul Provost. Very 80s-sounding keyboard sounds. Sounds like it could be the theme to, like, a TV show from the 80s. Oh, yeah. It sounds like... Perfect Strangers mixed with Paul Simon's Graceland or something, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Glenn livens things up with a great solo about halfway through, though. Just just when you think, you know, Paul Simon, Graceland, here comes Glenn. Yeah. Okay, track five, John Marshall, written by Glenn. This was a highlight for me, a great bass-driven ballad written by Glenn. Brian Burke in the Syracuse Herald from a review, calls this a haunting tune featuring Bill's astounding work on the fretless electric bass, a modern masterpiece. Hmm. 
I what? thought this was also a pretty good showcase for Glenn, too. Yeah. Yeah, I had Glenn's guitar playing is also outstanding here. Would have yep. been a real showstopper live, I bet. John Marshall Ryan was the fourth Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1801. This is also one of the tracks that's on the Echoes comp. Flip it over, and we've got Vista Cruiser, written by Paul Provost. We first heard this one on the No Age comp. Ryan, would you give us the spiel, please? You got it. So this is the spiel from the Spaceman on the back of the No Age comp. And again, that's SST-102, which is an Instro double LP SST comp. And here's what the Spaceman said about Glenn Phillips. And it's a mouthful, so hang in there. After first gaining notoriety as the young guitarist for the legendary Hampton Grease Band in the 70s, Glenn Phillips has been a constant fixture on best guitarist lists ever since. His beautiful, lushly orchestrated records belie the incredible ferocity of his live performances. With a fluid way of playing that emphasizes rippling clusters of celestial notes set against a muscular jazz rock rhythm section, Glenn's songs have a wild beauty that must be heard. With songs that are evocative of such diverse things as hang gliding and a descent into hell, the music of Glenn Phillips will never leave you earthbound again. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah. This song, Vista Cruiser, actually, like, sounds like something you'd hear now by one of the, speaking of Goblin, one of those kinds of bands, like Zombie, who I actually really love. They have a new album out yeah, that's maybe. just fantastic, by the way, Zombie. But uh, Glenn's bursts of noisy guitar really salvage this song. And the key, yeah. the keys sound retro in a good way. And I like the way this one builds up to the solo. It's pretty awesome. Also on the Echoes yeah. comp, this one. Yeah, it was it it was hitting a good kind of Devo vibe for me too now and then. And after hearing it on the No Age comp, it was like listening to a familiar friend i guess kind of when it came on maybe hey it's all there's also a bit of almost like a craft work vibe to it yeah oh yeah for sure that driving rhythm for yeah. sure okay track two dna written by glenn another one heavy on the keys bill takes a solo in this one one of yep. the articles glenn sent me sent me mentions that there was a performance clip of this song that was made that was being used to kind of promote the record but I couldn't find hmm. it. Okay, Rememory, written by Paul, but definitely driven by Glenn's guitar playing. Another ballad. Uh, it ends with some wild-ass pit pitch transposer action that's pretty great. Track four, side two, Tower of Babel, written by Bill. Cool piece, very 80s-sounding production. This one, again, could be the opening credits to some quirky 80s movie or something. Yeah, Family Matters. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, I kept Perfect thinking. Strangers, Family Matters, Full House, come on. I, no, I kept thinking like a movie like Weird Science or something. Oh, oh, maybe. Yeah. Not, not, well, yeah. Weird Science is pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, it is cool, actually. Yeah, oh yeah, way cool. Yeah. Track, what's the line? Chet has 
a dirty uh, pork sandwich eaten out of a greasy <laughs> ashtray or something. <laughs> Chet. Oh my gosh. Okay, track five, Rain Tonight, written by Glenn. Again, here's Glenn totally writing for Paul. Yeah, it's a it's like an uplifting tune, hey? Yeah. And then we end with the death ship. Uh guitar player says floating fog shrouded ambience this one's short it's only two minutes and it's it's just glenn here's a few reviews ryan oh and here's an interesting thing i found too in one of the articles from like a local paper while he's on tour and he toured this record with uh replacements for paul and doug because they both left the band okay he talks about recording a new record and it possibly being released on SST. And that would have been, I'm assuming, Scratched by the Rabbit, which ended up coming out in 1990. Here's what Glenn says in the book Echoes, actually, about this. Thanks to engineer George Pappas, it was probably the best recorded album I'd done up to that point. Musically, though, I didn't think it was as strong as my first four L LPs, Lost at Sea through Razor Pocket, he calls it an improvement on live and St. Valentine's Day, which I'm not sure I agree with. I love St. Valentine's Day. I actually pre prefer both of those records over this one. I Ryan, I really hope if this is our listener's introduction to Glenn's music, they check out some of his other albums, if they don't love this yeah. one. Agreed. Okay, here's some reviews. Reminds me of what the dregs might have sounded like if Steve Morse ingested a large quantity of LSD and holed up with a bunch of Husker Du records. Like Morse, he writes melodies for the instrument based on its limitations and his abilities. However, like Bob Mould, he uses the electronics and the noise potentials of the guitar itself to drive it into hyperspace. Add to this the fluid... Jaco-flavored bass of Bill Rhea, and you have an unbeatable one-two punch. And this reviewer gave it an A. It's not clear who some of these reviewers are, by the way, so um, that's why I'm not crediting yeah. it. I wouldn't say this is Jaco-flavored bass. That's just someone who says, someone who plays fretless bass sounds like Jaco. Yeah. Okay, here's in Guitar Player Magazine. On stage, Glenn Phillip cuts an unforgettable figure. Balding dome fringed with wispy hair racquetball wristbands to soak up drizzling sweat, knee pads to buffer those bone-crunching James Brown gymnastics. <laughs> Flying, flailing, jabbing the air with Chuck Norris head kicks, the 37-year-old guitarist is out to steal the hardest-working man in showbiz title. But there's more to Phillips fretwork than theatrics. His playing is taut and melodic, the sinewy product of playing more than 150 gigs a year for the past 17 or more years. So there's another SST tie-in, the work ethic. I mean, the dude ran his own label, man, in the, in 1975. Yep. Who was doing that? Yeah, Ginn would have seen a, a major kindred spirit in Glenn. I, I got to think, right? And DIY touring, man? Yeah. Original, sure. not just original music but instrumental music. Yeah. After you've been on a major label too. Yeah. Okay. Here's the same article later on talking about his playing. A weird warbling tremolo that sounds like a songbird with a throat cold. And here's Glenn in that article. I get the hand tremolo by just grabbing the strings, reveals Phillips. My hand disconnects from the neck, except for my fingers and I'm just shaking my hand really fast. 
the action's coming more from my arm than my wrist. And it's so true. If you watch any of the videos, there are some great videos on YouTube. And he has a, an amazing vibrato, for sure. Mm -hmm. One reviewer says something about introducing Glenn, Henry Rollins to Glenn. This is after Black Flag broke up. And says that this album's for Greg Ginn fans. Okay, just a few more, Ryan. Here's from The Mix, the recording industry magazine by Bill Milkowski. Seven albums and 15 years later, he's still going strong. Bucking convention, still a renegade after all these years. His latest on SST Records is Elevator, an eccentric ins instrumental rock album that features Phillips' sonically insane guitar feats. This stuff is wildly aggressive with a strong melodic sense, and some of the sounds that Phillips manages to emit from his customized Gibson L6 are strictly out to lunch. In short, it's the kind of music that guitar fans will drool over. Here's another one. Kevin Holm Hudson from Pulse Beat. Elevator recalls the best moments of Jeff Beck's wired and blow-by-blow -blow fling with Fusion, with Phillips' stinging style gracefully framed by keyboards reminiscent of Lyle Mays, who uh, was the keyboard player in Pat Metheny group, who Glenn also gets compared to quite a bit, and a bassist of the melodic Pastorius variety. There's another reference for you, Ryan. Those are just people who hear fretless bass and that's it. A fine album of jazz fusion played with rock and roll intensity. When the lame keyboards aren't trying to steal the show, one can be dazzled by Phillips' guitar wizardry. It took about three listens before I could block out all of the background music and just be carried away by this cat's finger play. He's awesome. Poppy and progressive. A superior product. Here's one more, Ryan, that I really liked from this uh, newspaper called Southline Arts. If the music is the message, then this is God's truth, the real harmonic convergence. Brand buds of the soul. As always, our loop-the-loop, stutter-stepping, throttle-jockin' guitar guru hangs ten off of, your, off of your head and gets a wheel in your face. But he also <laughs> turns half the LP to his comrades. Note especially Bill Rhea's Think Piece, Inca Metallic Silver, and Paul Provost's maddeningly familiar Arlo. For cat scratch, post-hippie, post-modern church house lushness, and mid-minimalist needle-nose anthems, there's just no place else to call home. So, you know, this album got great reviews. I think if I was a Glenn Phillips fan in real time, I might have been somewhat disappointed with this record, though. Back then, yeah. I, I the, the slickness is hard to overcome no matter when, when you hit it. Uh, you you definitely have to you have to get over it in order to start to like enjoy the record. Um, there's a veneer that is easily distracting. You have to see past it. Well, I can see past that. It's the lack of guitar craziness that just the does, shred. Yeah. yeah, the shred factor is pretty low. Yeah, and he can shred, man. Like there's videos where he's doing, you know. Eddie Van Halen style finger tapping that's just insane. Do you want to talk about the cover art? Sure. You guys covered it in the interview. It's uh the the photo really matches the sound of the record actually, and Glenn points that out too. I like it. Yeah. It's, it's probably one of my favorite things about the record actually is the artwork. It's an interesting optical illusion that yeah. it creates as well. 
Ballot result? You betcha. Ballot result. So you are the bigger Glenn Phillips fans. You have to pick. So, But very quickly, I'm just going to throw in what would be my two favorites. And it's Vista Cruiser for the familiarity factor. Plus, I like the tune. And then also John Marshall. I would go with those two, probably. Yeah, those were my two favorites. And I also liked Micro. Mm. Yeah. Let's do uh, Vista Cruiser because it's just got some great shredding on it done seriously though thanks glenn for being on the show i hope you know i don't love this record but i love glenn phillips man and i will always go back to the those first four glenn phillips records lost at sweet sea swim in the wind dark lights and razor pocket they're all awesome our listeners will check it out yeah. have faith man yeah have faith and seriously look them up on youtube too there's some great videos Especially some, there's a really good one of him just going crazy with a hammer. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Glenn, by the way, for being on the shows and for sending me all those reviews. It was, it was awesome talking to Glenn. Real thrill yeah. for me. Woo, Ryan, what's next week? I can't believe how happy I am to say this, but actually, no, I can totally believe it. <laughs> it's. It's SST-137. We're back with Zoog's Rift. It's Water Part 2. Water 2 at a safe distance. And Brent, we've got Mr. California on you the show. You bet. You bet. Craig Unkrich is back on the show. Let's get Zoog's. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.